Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Everyone talks about being big, but but the reality is that, you know, excellence is a series. It's, it's just this countless series of little things that give you, that add up to something exceptional. It's not like one or two or three big things. And so while we focus on the big thing, it's really impossible to get there. The only way to achieve excellence is through micro-excellence, by, by excelling in all the tiny, tiny, tiny details. And it's incredible uh, whether you're an exceptional architect or whether you've won a Nobel Prize in, in economics or physics or whether you're an athlete or whether you're a musician. It's always the tiniest of the details that make all the difference. And too often we don't focus on them. And, and that's, that's where I try to bring out is that one common trait across all of the exceptions I studied, I interviewed, I spent time with, uh, I watched, I read about, uh, everyone sweats the small stuff. Everyone focuses on, on the details. And that whole concept is something I call micro-excellence. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Kumar, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me on your show. It is my pleasure to have you here. Um, I found out about your work because I came across your book, The Exceptionals, uh, which is a book about how people who are the best in the world at you know what they are become that way. And it was hands down one of my favorite books I've read you know, this year. And that's why I wanted to kick off 2021 or 2022 with you as our first guest, because I thought people need to hear this because it's such a realistic take on self-improvement that I've yet to come across in, you know, 10 years of doing this work. But before we get into the book, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you ended up making with your own life and career? Wow. Thank you for that introduction. And, and, uh, uh, and especially thank you for starting off with a hard question. Um, my, my dad was a surgeon uh, he's no longer there, and and my mom uh, assisted uh, assisted him because we had a little uh, nursing home and a hospital with about fifteen or twenty beds, and so she kind of managed some of that stuff and helped keep that going. But she also took care of uh, uh, three kids. So uh, my my dad had an inter- interesting life. I mean, he was a brilliant surgeon, but he spent about half of his time working for free. Uh, he he went to a municipal hospital every day. That he taught, he he did surgery, just basically just because he felt like he had to do that. And the other half of his time, uh, he had, he had a private practice and and uh, actually worked so he could pay the bills. So I don't know. I mean, if you ask me specifically how my parents have influenced me, I I'd be hard to pinpoint. But I'm sure they've influenced me in in everything I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, did you, one, grow up with a typical Indian kid narrative around your house of, you know, a doctor, lawyer, engineer? Because, I mean, clearly your dad, you know, being a doctor, I'd imagine that might have had some influence. Because even my parents not being doctors, that was the message throughout our house is, you want a good life, become a doctor. And, of course, my sister did that, and I didn't, which is, you know, as I've joked before, my, you know, friend says, your sister is like every Indian parent's dream come true, uh, which makes me every Indian <laughs> parent's nightmare come true. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can relate to that. I, I have. Uh, yeah, I, I actually uh, wanted to become a doctor, but I didn't get into medical school, so I went to pharmacy school. But uh, and I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. But then, uh, uh, literally, uh, for the and, and that was just for a couple of years. I, I left the pharmaceutical industry. I, I moved to across the country to work at Microsoft and technology uh, when it was a tiny little company uh, growing up. Uh, and then I left and uh, became a CEO and, and started uh, started a, a services company. And, and after I exited from that, I decided to write books. So I think uh, I haven't followed any traditional path, but I've been through many different uh, kind of uh, reincarnations and different careers that, that are entirely unrelated to anything I've done previously. Uh, now, were you born and raised in India or were you uh, born and raised here, you know, educated here early on? I was born and raised in India. I came to the U.S. after finishing college. I came here to go to graduate school at the University of Iowa. What did you notice as sort of major differences in cultural values, uh, you know, and the way that people are socialized in the United States, um, particularly in the education system versus the way they are in India? Well, I haven't been in the education system here directly. I mean, I have through my through my kids, uh, and I think. Uh, well, I mean, I think that first of all, the, the 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 two countries are entirely different in so many ways. Especially, you know, twenty, thirty, forty years ago. Yeah. Uh, now it's actually uh, not that different in terms of values, just uh, because uh, this, everyone all over the world has access to the same information. Uh, as you know, uh, everyone or most people in India speak English, and they basically read the same news and listen to the same blogs and listen to the same TED Talks as people in the U.S. So that that difference is is kind of uh, getting uh, is, is, uh, that difference isn't there as much anymore. But in the uh, early days, uh, I, I just think everything was different. Uh, I, I just think uh, how how we related to people. I mean, first of all, you know, I, I remember going to Iowa City, and the first thing I noticed was. There are more people that lived on my street in Mumbai than lived <laughs> in the entire town yeah, of Iowa City. Absolutely. Uh, and then I'd, I'd walk to the bus stop every day and and uh, to to take my campus to go, to go to campus and and I'd I'd see these people I don't know say hello to me and I'm going like wait why are you saying hello to me you don't know me uh, but then I just realized I just being you know people being warm and friendly. So, so it's just uh, there's so many differences uh, in in every way that I'm sure you may have experienced if you've gone back and forth. Yeah, well, no, I, th I think the thing that really shocked me. I went back uh, after about seven or eight years. I went in 2007 while I was in business school, and then my sister got married in 2019, and I went back in 2018 to shop for the wedding because that's what Indians do when we have weddings. We have to go to India to buy clothes because there's so many damn outfits for the whole thing, uh, <laughs> but. I think what really shocked me was the dramatic shift in cultural values. I met you know podcast listeners of mine who were like me doing work like mine. I spent time at a surf camp, which was an ashram, and I you know when one of the guys uh, and I were out paddleboarding, he started just asking me about people like Tim Ferriss and people all the people that I've interviewed, and I, I thought to myself, wow, you've you know, heard of these people. And this guy had abandoned a job at you know Deloitte Consulting to go and you know be a photographer at a surf camp. And I thought that is a dramatic shift in the cultural narrative that we have had around careers for probably the better part of the last 30 years. Yeah, I, I agree. So uh, speaking of kids, uh, one of the things that re really struck me was one of the things that you said about, uh, you know, being raised in an environment of high expectation, which is, I think, kind of standard for most Indian kids where nobody puts our report cards on refrigerators when we get straight A's. That's just what they expect. And, you know, I think that there are numerous benefits to that leader in life, even though they seem like a pain in the ass um, in childhood. But, you know, I remember you saying uh, something specifically about, you know, the pros and cons of that when it came to raising your own kids. I mean, how is, has this perspective on, you know, exceptionals influenced your own parenting? Well, I've been researching uh, exceptional performance or, or basically what it takes for certain people to become the best in the world at what they do uh, across, across multiple fields. And I've been doing that for the past several years. Uh, 
unfortunately, my kids are past the age. I mean, they're young adults now. They're in their they're in their mid to late twenties. So uh, so everything I've learned in the past few years was not applicable when they were young. I wish it was. I, I wish I knew so much more. Uh, and you know, my kids are fine. They have great lives. They've had good education. They have good jobs. They, they're trying to make an impact. They're trying to make a difference. But really, I didn't. I never thought when when they were like three, four, five, six. You know, how do I? You know, do you know? Can they become like world changers? And never that thought never crossed my mind. I tried to do everything. You know, expose them to, you know, uh, you know, baseball and piano and and karate and you know all, all kinds of stuff that kids do, uh, along with the. Uh, you know, acting and drama and debate and, and of course, do well in school. So, uh, but I never thought that, hey, you know, maybe, you know, does any of my, uh, kid, do any of my kids have the potential for becoming a Michael Jordan in their field? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I had Daniel Coyle who wrote the talent code here uh, quite a while back. And I remember talking to him saying, you know, I wish my parents had told me about this 10,000 hour thing when I was a kid. But he said often those parents do more harm than good because it doesn't give a kid the room to explore and grow and, and to become their own person. Uh, and often he said, this is why child prodigies don't end up becoming musicians and professional orchestras often. Absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, I think showing uh, showing a talent as a child is necessary, but it's just basically a modest indicator of what you can do because you absolutely need to be born with talent, but then there's so much more. Uh, I think what I would have done differently if I had kids, uh, knowing what I know now, is create an environment that uh, that that would let them do their best work. It would be to you know help them understand their strengths, uh, create a culture of striving in a sense. Uh, you know, I would have them believe that uh, the guys you see on TV, the people you see on TV, these people who do these incredible things uh, in sports or in other fields or people you read about, that's just not reserved for a few special people. I think with the right things, you too can become uh, exceptional yeah. in, in whatever you choose to do or whatever you whatever is meant for you to be exceptional in. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, so the funny thing is that I think it, it's starting to change with people in my generation who, you know, went to college in the United States, particularly with immigrants, you know, born and brought up here. But in our parents' generation, I think that narrative of, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, and high expectation is still predominant. And, you know, as I said, I think the upside to my parents being so insistent that straight A's were not negotiable is just what we did was that it taught me the value of intrinsic motivation. The downside of it is that I think that one of the things that happens, particularly when that's the narrative around your household, is that it blinds you to the possibilities that surround you because all you're forced to see are the options in front of you. And, you know, we're talking about changing a cultural narrative of an entire culture or you know, race or generation. How does that begin to happen? Wow, that's a that's a a pretty loaded question. I mean, that's got a lot of, that's got a, a lot of elements, and I'm trying to understand how to uh, dissect it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is the question how we can change an entire society in terms of uh, becoming exceptional or or? Yeah, I guess it's it's a it's a big you know question, and we could probably spend three hours talking about it, but. Let me, you know, frame it with, you know, example to give you some context. So my dad had one of our uncles visiting and, uh, you know, he had a son in ninth grade and my dad asked him, so what does he want to do? Does he want to become a doctor, lawyer, engineer, study computers? And, uh, you know, this uncle was like, well, right now all he cares about is girls. And I was like, he's in ninth grade. That's all he should care about. You know, you've just limited this kid's options to like four possible futures. And to me, that I think is one of the great disservices that we do when we insist that people should know exactly what they want to do with their lives before they've had enough data points to even make a decision. You know, like my mom always thought I should go become a doctor. And I would tell her, I'm like, I hate going to the hospital. I get sick all the time. She And she said, well, you'll develop immunity like a typical Indian mother. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, uh, I think if if you want to really be successful at something, uh, it's got to play to your strengths. And 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 I, there've been there's, there's been a lot of research that's been done in the area that there are basically you know eight different kinds of intelligences. Uh, you know, uh, there's mathematical and logical. There's linguistic. There's uh, athletic. Uh, there's musical. There's uh, Intrapersonal, intrapersonal, and it would be really good if if you were able to identify. I mean, obviously, with the help of your parents, kind of where your natural skills lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, like you said, you know, uh, yeah, maybe you're just not meant to be. You know, you have great interpersonal skills, you have great linguistic skills. That's why you picked this profession. Uh, but if if that was if that was something that was identified uh, and encouraged when you were six or eight or twelve years old. You know, maybe things might you might have gotten into what you're doing earlier. You know, unless, uh, of course, you know, uh, getting straight A's and all that. You know, maybe hey, you're in this environment, you you have to try to do the best you can. But it might have been uh, good, and that's what happens for the most exceptional people. Uh, they've 
identify the strengths early on in life mm-hmm. and then they're able to build on them. Yeah. Well, so, uh, let, let's actually start diving into the concepts in the book. So you open the book by talking about um, sort of, you know, what's required to be exceptional. But the thing that struck me most in the introduction is that you said that being the best often means earning a lot of money. But the question is, will it make you happy? When we live by the common refrain that money can't buy happiness, research in the area has shown that achieving great wealth does, in fact, tend to make you happier. The caveat is that great wealth can make you happy only if you've earned it yourself as opposed to inheriting it, inheriting it or coming into a windfall. People with a network of, of greater than a net worth of greater than 10 million appear to be happier than others as long as they earned the wealth themselves. Now, you we live in a society that puts billionaires on the covers of magazines and iconic, you know, people on pedestals almost to the point of leading us to compare ourselves to unrealistic models of possibility for us, um, which I know you go into later in the book. Uh, but what is the the downside to that? Because we had Will Storr here who wrote this book called, you know, uh, Selfie, How We've Become Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. And he said, you know, part of what is happening with the media that we create is that we're perpetuating this narrative that if you're not Steve Jobs, if you're not Oprah, if you're not Beyonce, then your life has no meaning. And you and I both know the reality is that many of us are probably not going to find ourselves with a net worth of $10 million in this lifetime. Right. Uh, right. So how do you balance that, you know, reality with the drive to continue being, becoming exceptional? So that, that was just a proxy for uh, what the, the famous exceptional people. When I speak, when I talk of exceptional it's becoming the best in your field, whatever it could be. You could be an exceptional accountant. You could be an exceptional podcaster. You could be an exceptional nurse. You could be, you know, an uh, exceptional architect. You could be exceptional um, data analyst, you know, pick a profession. It, we're, we're not just talking of, you know, being an exceptional quarterback or being an exceptional golfer like Tiger Woods. Uh, we're talking of being a, the best at your field, whatever it may be. And, uh, and, and basically, I, I talk about uh, being exceptional means maximizing your potential. Now, in some cases, if you are born uh, like a Bill Gates or a Michael Jordan or a Tiger Woods, you know, becoming exceptional means having an impact on the world. In other cases, it means just becoming the best you can become, you know, maximizing your physical, your mental, your social potential that's available to you. And if you do that, that's all you can hope to do. And that's being exceptional, mm-hmm. is doing the best you possibly can. Yeah. And uh, uh, and w- once you do that, you have the satisfaction of knowing that you've given it your all, you've left nothing out there, and then that's a great feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start by talking uh, specifically about genetics, because I think there's nothing that people hate more in the world of self-improvement than genetic determinism. But there are two things that you say that really struck me. You say that although no one can exactly quantify the amount of influence genes or DNA has on performance, the estimates of how much genes contribute to high performance are generally over 50%. This means that innate abilities influence the exceptional achievements we observe more than any other factor contributing to half or more of the effect. You have to be born with the right markers that will make you successful in a domain. Everyone has natural talent in some area. Your chances of success will depend on whether you find your innate skills and can take advantage of them. What I wonder is why this narrative is not more prevalent and why we have basically sold people this bag of bullshit of you can be anything, do anything, or have anything. Like You and I both know that you and I are never going to play LeBron James in a game of basketball, even a game of pickup. Well... I mean, I think because that's the one thing that's not in your control. Uh, it's it's in your parents' control, uh, and it's it's uh, it's also it's it's just not how we talk about things. You know, we talk about ten thousand hours, or we talk about grit, or we talk about all these things we can do. Now, all of them are absolutely necessary. You are not going to become, like you said, a LeBron James uh, without ten or twenty or fifty thousand hours or whatever that number is. Uh, you're not going to do it without perseverance and grit and a growth mindset and all these other things. But none of, so while all of these are necessary, they're not sufficient. You have to be born with a certain way. Uh, you know, I could, I could just, you know, building on your example, I could spend 20,000 or 30,000 hours and I could be born with a basketball in my lap. I'm never going to become Michael Jordan just because I'm, I'm built to do something else. Um, 
And the sooner I realized, but, but I could be the Michael Jordan of something else as soon as I realized what that was. And if I realized that, hey, you know, I've got an ability to be a great writer or, you know, to, to be a mathematician or to be a musician, if that's what I focused on and built on that natural ability, my chances of becoming exceptional increase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, you know, one, how you identify that natural ability or talent, because you know, I had this mentor, Greg, who used to say that, you know, we often focus on the possibility of being able to accomplish and ignore the probability of being able to accomplish it. And so as a result, you have a lot of people who are basically on this uphill battle to try to succeed at something they have absolutely no natural talent at because what are they hearing from the world around them? Everybody should start a podcast. Everybody should be a writer. Everybody should be a public speaker. Everybody should do this. And I realized there's nothing that everybody should do. And I personally said, if you see the word everybody should, you should assume that what follows is bullshit because it might be for you. Right. Are you waiting for me to respond to that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like, you know, why? So how do you identify that natural talent? More importantly, you know, you yeah. mentioned the genetics are, are not under control, but then why is it you have so many people who are striving to get something good at some an area where they have no natural aptitude? So for example, you know, I tried to study computer science in college. And by the time we got to the last two weeks, I realized I'm going to get an F in this class. I have absolutely no aptitude for this. My brain doesn't work like this. Correct. Yeah. No, you are, uh, you are absolutely right. Uh, there is every, the way you can find out, well, just think about it. You know, if you ask a hundred people around you, uh, you know, what are you good at? They're all going to be scratching their heads and thinking, you know, I'm not sure what I'm really good at. You know, I'm not sure what my aptitude is. I'm not sure what my gift is. Uh, everyone has, something that they're good at. We're born with, you know, uh, with varying, uh, varying abilities in different things. In your case, if you weren't good at uh, computer science and that you didn't have the aptitude for that, you know, maybe you just didn't have that, that, that built in you, but you know, you're good with words, you know, you're good with connecting with people, you know, that was your strength. So the way to, the way to find out what you're good at uh, is uh, ask people around you. That's, that's the simplest thing. Or ask people who really know you. And the other thing is, uh, you know, kind of uh, if you can think back, you know, think of the things you gravitated to when you were a kid. Uh, you know, when what are the things you really like doing? Because when you when when you have no expectations, when you've got nothing around you, you've got all the free time in the world. The things you pick are the things that kind of blend in with your natural uh, talent and abilities. And I didn't realize this when I was a kid, but I know I loved reading. Uh, I, I I read books all the time. I mean, I, I couldn't read enough books. I mean, I'd just sit in my room, my summer vacations and read and read and read. And uh, I, I didn't make any connection to this. But then I had a professional career in, in science, like, like, a, like a lot of kids. And, and then I went into data and analytics and did all that. But once I kind of got off that track, and I wanted to do stuff I that I thought I'd like doing, somehow, the thought of writing books came to me and the and the act of writing uh, while, you know, it, it's a hard process, it's impossible for some other people. But for me, uh, I realized that I could actually think and and analyze and research and write. And so it, it was that linguistic intelligence that, and then I made the connection once I studied all this, that, yeah, you know, maybe I was just born with a little, uh, you know, I was born a little bit more advanced on, on, on this capability than many other things that I've done in my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it it absolutely does. Um, well, let's talk about sort of what you call, you know, the enablers of, you know, becoming exceptional. You know, one of the things that you say is that, uh, you know, the exceptionals hone their skills through intense effort and hard work, and there's no substitute or volume of effort for serious and deliberate practice. Every single exceptional has worked incredibly hard and devoted years, even decades to, you know, their li- their lives getting better at their craft. And so you go into sort of this idea, you know, idea of attitudes, habits, beliefs, uh, and environment. Let's start with environment, because I think that people really underestimate the role that their environment plays in their ability to accomplish what they do. Because as we talked about, I mean, you know, being raised in an Indian family is an environment of high expectation. 
that comes with a lot of advantages that other people can't replicate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, just to kind of, uh, just to put this conversation in context, uh, the way I, I talk about what it takes to become exceptional is that it's the combination of three, three uh, elements. Uh, the first one we've already talked about, which is, uh, uh, which is your innate ability. You know, are you building on your strengths? Um, uh, the second thing is just the amount of, as you pointed out, the hard work and intense effort that you put into something. Both of these are absolutely necessary. And if you just do this, these two things, you can become very, very good at something if you work really, really hard in an area where you have a natural ability. But to truly become exceptional, to become the best in the world at, at what you are, to become, you know, just to stand out, uh, you need something else. And those are the enabling factors. And, and one of those, uh, there are five enabling factors that I discussed. And one of those is the environment you're brought up in. And the environment is actually quite simple. It, it's just your physical environment, you know. Uh, and if you want to be a skier, you need to be near snow. <laughs> yeah. uh, or, you know, you know, I mean, or, you know, if, if you're a scientist, you need to be near a lab. I mean, you can, you know, it's just a simple thing. It's just a physical environment. The other thing is the social, the psychological or psychosocial environment, which is some of the things you're talking about is, you know, uh, are you brought up in a culture of striving? Are you brought up in an uh, environment where you believe you can, uh, you, you, you believe you can achieve uh, whatever you want to achieve? Are you brought up in an environment that actually uh, shows you the link between uh, effort and outcomes? So, uh, so these are some of the elements that the most exceptional people uh, in the world have actually grown up in. So that's that's what I mean when I talk about the the right environment. Yeah. Well, uh, partly it's also uh, yeah, sorry, just, ahead, just, sorry. Finish, just to finish the thought. It's it's also partly being surrounded by like minded people and being able to test your skills and test your abilities on an everyday basis. Uh-huh. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project. There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So that's also the environment you're in. Anyway, go ahead. You had a question. Yeah, no, well, it, it was a comment. So, you know, when I, I, as I told you, I'm writing this huge guide on how to build an audience and I, I cited a lot of research from your book in the guide, but uh, I you just spent seven years in Texas and Texas has the best high school music programs in the country. And because of that, I had world-class music teachers. And the contrast when I got to California was drastic. And it was because of that environment that I was able to get really good at what I did within three years. Like, I think I made more progress between seventh and ninth grade than I did for the rest of the time I was in high school as a musician, simply because of that environment. Mm -hmm. Yep, that makes perfect sense. So let's talk about um, sort of, you know, what goes into intense effort, because I think intense effort is somewhat, you know, misunderstood by a lot of people. Um, I think they often think it's just, you know, hours, you know, on end of doing work. But one of the things you say is that very few people have the discipline and commitment to follow through on a single desire. Most of us get distracted or drawn to other opportunities along the way and are unable to demonstrate the singular focus required to excel. The exceptionals share an unwavering commitment to the target they set Many of them have established precise and specific goals very, very early on. Yeah, uh, I think uh, the the people who become exceptional uh, knew what they were, what they wanted to do very early in their lives. You know, look at Borg, the, the the tennis legend. He knew at when he was eight years old he wanted to play on the center court at Wimbledon, and I think he ended up winning like five or six times. Uh, same with Agassi or Tiger Woods or. You know, any of these people that we just think about when, when we think about these exceptional uh, talents. So they, they knew uh, what they wanted to do very early on. They had the North Star in their mind at a very early age. They, um, and then uh, they also knew uh, that that's not going to be easy. And they were, they were willing to put in the hours, like, the, I mean, just the in, insane amount of effort and energy. And we, you know, when we see people... Uh, on TV after they've achieved their success, you know, they, they, they make it look easy, but it's never easy getting to, you know, getting to that uh, level. You know, I, I talk about uh, Usain Bolt, uh, you know, he had this image of this, you know, smiling and, and, you know, waving and, you know, running around the track and, you know, being with the, being one with the crowds and he had this partying kind of look and feel, but there were probably no one who worked uh, any harder than he did. The way his in workouts were to get there were just really intense. So again, this book is about what it takes to become exceptional in something. And it's, it's not about, uh, you know, sound bites. Uh, the, the reality, the, uh, I don't know if it's a harsh reality, but the reality is that it is going to take an immense amount of effort. And, uh, and if you want to become the best in the world at what you do, uh, you're going to have to put in the work. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, attitudes, self-belief, and habits, because I know that this also plays a role. And uh, one of the things you talk about is this idea of self-efficacy, uh, which you know you say was introduced by the psychologist Albert Bandura, and it's an individual's belief in their innate capability to achieve their goals. And you say belief in ability is often a more reliable predictor of your success than your actual skills or say, uh, capabilities. This means your level of achievement at a task is influenced more by whether you believe you can achieve it than whether you have developed the skills and capabilities to achieve it. So the question then is for somebody who has a skill, 
but doesn't believe they can achieve a goal, how do they begin to achieve that goal? And then, you know, for the delusional person who has the belief without the skill. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so you, you have to, you have, you know, beyond having everything else, you just have to believe you belong on that stage. I've spoken to uh, uh, a number of Olympians who actually, uh, you know, went to the Olympics, who made it there. And, you know, and when you're at the Olympics at the starting line and, and you're looking around you and you all of a sudden feel, you know, like an imposter syndrome or you feel like I don't be- belong here, you've lost that race before the gun goes off. You have to have that belief. I mean, again, you know, going back to Usain Bolt, he just had that belief that he could outrun anyone. If he, if he followed his process, he could, you know, achieve, uh, he, he, could, he could win the race. Uh, and that is the belief you need. Uh, you know, uh, so for example, you know, if, if, if I had, if, if everything was on the line and if I need someone to take the last shot on the basketball court or make that last putt, for me, uh, I would pick Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, not because they have the best stats for putting or shooting baskets. Uh, maybe they do, maybe they don't. I actually don't know. Uh, I would pick them because I know that they'll come through in the clutch. I know that they have that belief, and that is the belief that you need. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way to do it, uh, the, the way to do it. So, uh, belief and skills are linked by uh, by reciprocal causation. Each one relies on the other. So if you believe you can do something, you know, your skills, your skill set stretches to meet that belief. And if your skill set is really high, then your belief increases as well. And so if you really want to uh, build that self-belief and self-confidence, you know, start, start by picking tasks that are slowly outside of your comfort zone, just a little bit, uh, and let your, you know, uh, and then let your skill meet that, you know, and then stretch to meet that. And if you keep doing that enough times, your belief in yourself will increase. There are several ways to increase your self-efficacy, and then there's a lot of literature around it. But uh, but just becoming good at something, mastering something, is probably the simplest way to to start increasing your self-efficacy. Yeah. So one of the things that you talked about when it comes to self-efficacy is is sort of looking at the people that we have as role models. Uh, and I think this really struck me because it takes us back to that idea of you know outliers as our role models and you know primarily we look at outliers or as our role models because these are the people that have you know press written about them um they're the ones on the covers of magazines yeah and yet most of them are unrealistic models of possibility and one of the things you say is watching role models say athletes on tv or others who already uh who are already exceptional can sometimes serve as a vicarious stimulus to self-efficacy but it's less impactful than seeing a peer do something extraordinary yeah. Uh, yeah. When, when you see, you know, when you see uh, someone and I, I, I write about an Olympian who uh, who, you know, uh, didn't make it to the Olympic trials uh, uh, in uh, I can't remember the year, but but she didn't make it to the Olympic trials. And when I was speaking with her, she she visited the uh, Olympic trials as uh, as a, uh, as a spectator. And, you know, when she was in the stands and she heard, you know, uh, the names of people being called out and she heard. Uh, you know, these these are people that she run against in college, and and these are people she knew, and she, she said, "Wow, if they can do it, I can do it too." And and that gave her that incredible rush of of, of self belief and self efficacy. So when you see, you know, yeah, when you see Michael Jordan do something spectacular, you know, that's that's great, and you enjoy watching it. But when you see your friend uh, in your classroom do something, you're going, "Oh, wait a second, you know, he can do it, or she can do it, I can do it too." Mm-hmm. And that's uh, you know, that's. Uh, Those are the experiences that that help you grow. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this whole idea of micro excellence, because, you know, this is one of the things that struck me most, um, especially because I think this is how all writers and all creatives become successful is through what you call micro excellence. The most outstanding individuals from all walks of life have attained their greatness by focusing on the small, seemingly insignificant things, not just by focusing on the big stuff. The cumulative effect of small changes leads to significant outcomes. And, you know, I think that that struck me because so often I will have people who come to me and say things like, I want to write a New York Times bestselling book. And they don't have a blog. They don't have an audience. They've never written a word. uh, And they have these really sort of lofty goals. Uh, How do you 
one, break that narrative, first of all, and then how do you use the concepts of micro excellence to actually accomplish it all? Yeah, I think I think you you hit it on the head. I think we're just wired to think big, you know, don't sweat the small stuff, you know, get, you know, if you're in a corporate environment, you want these big, hairy goals. You, you want, everyone talks about being big, but but the reality is that, you know, excellence uh, is, is, is a series, it's, it's just this countless series of little things that give you, that add up to something exceptional. It's not like one or two or three big things. And so while we focus on the big thing, it's really impossible to get there. But if, you know, to your example, if you write every day and you become a better writer and you start publishing and you have two people or five people read your work and that five becomes 15 and that 15 becomes 100, you know, that's how you're going to grow. It's, 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 the only way to achieve excellence is through micro-excellence, by, by excelling in all the tiny, tiny, tiny details. And it's incredible uh, whether you're an exceptional architect or whether you won a Nobel Prize in, in economics or physics or whether you're an athlete or whether you're a musician. It's always the tiniest of the details that make all the difference. And too often we don't focus on them. And, and that's, that's where I try to bring out is that one common trait across all of the exceptionals I studied, I interviewed, I spent time with, uh, I watched, I read about, uh, everyone sweats the small stuff. Everyone focuses on, on the details. And that whole concept is something I call micro-excellence. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that really uh, struck me that you said was everyone wants to be excellent when it matters most, but the only way to be excellent when it matters most is to be excellent when it matters least. And, you know, it made me think about sort of how people practice, um, you know, a musical instrument, for example. And to me, it was always practice as if you're performing in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. And yep. a lot of people don't yeah. do that. Yes, you're absolutely right. We think of we we just think of peak performances. You know, we think of uh, you, you know the the game, the meet, the match, the recital, whatever it is, and you're going to peak there. But the only way and 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 and, and these these are the uh, events that actually have a peak performance day. If you are a product manager at a company, or if you are a surgeon, or if you are an accountant, or if you are a lawyer, your peak performances. Whenever it is, you don't know when it is. Your peak performance is when there's a patient lying on that bed, not not when you prepare for some specific outcome. Uh, so the only way to do your best when it matters the most is to be able to do it all the time. And and that's that's the message I try to get across is that the only way to be excellent when it matters most is to be excellent when it matters least, yeah. when no one is looking, when it's just you. And, and when you know that you master the task, then you know that when you really need to do it, you'll be able to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk specifically about this idea of no plan B, uh, because I don't think there's an Indian parent in America who came from my parents' generation who would say, yeah, go be an artist, no plan B, uh, you know, unless they're really strange, you know, weird parents, because you know, particularly for creatives and artists, they are signing up for a life where there is no guarantee of anything. And there's always a possibility that you end up in poverty or, you know, amount to nothing after busting your ass for years, because you don't hear those stories. You know, those aren't the stories we hear about. You only hear the stories of, you know, the struggling writer who, you know, broke out of nowhere and became J.K. Rowling. Right. Yeah. So the one other thing. So my book is about the common elements that are shared among the most exceptional people in all fields. And one of them is that they're fully committed to what they do. And there is really no plan B. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if for whatever reason that career is cut short. In fact, I spoke to an Olympian uh, who was uh, who, who wanted to become an Olymp- Olympic skier, and she had a skiing accident and eventually became an, an Olympic runner. Uh, so, so you know, you, you do other things if, if, if something doesn't work out, but you don't go out saying that, hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, become a you know, uh, rock, you know, I'm going, I'm going to be, you know, make it big in a rock band, but if that doesn't work. You know, my family has an auto dealership that I'll go work at. That's having a plan B because what ends up happening is that by definition, your plan B is your safety net. It's, it's, it's designed to say that, Hey, you know, I'm going to go as far as I want, as high as I want. And for whatever reason, things don't work out my way and I fall, then my plan B is there to, is there to grab me. But, but plan B ends up doing the opposite 
you know, things are going to get hard. We just talked about the amount of energy and effort you need to put in. And whenever the, whenever you get the slightest bump in your in the road, people just say, ah, this is not for me. I'm just maybe I'll go and do my plan B. And that's never going to make you exceptional. So the, the most, if you want to become exceptional, you've got to be fully committed, not be thinking about what else you can do. If you don't become exceptional or if you don't achieve what you think you ought to achieve, all those skills that brought you into getting as far as you possibly can can be transferred to something else. So you always have options, but you just don't go in saying that, hey, if this doesn't work, I, I got something else waiting for me. Yeah. We'll, let's do one more area of intense effort, and then we'll get into you know what you call joining the exceptionals. And this struck me because you know this is kind of a common debate around Silicon Valley. You know, the you know, header of this section was 40 hours isn't nearly enough. And you say you need to be working on thinking about your cause all the time. You need to have an unmatched work ethic. You can't take evenings and weekends off. You have to be prepared to immerse yourself in improving your skills. And, uh, you know, I had Justine Musk here, who's Elon's ex-wife. Uh, you know, she ended up writing an article that ended up going viral about extreme success. And the thing that always struck me about, you know, what she said was that, when you see people like Richard Branson and Elon Musk, she said, people don't really see the amount of work that goes into these accomplishments. She said, these often come at the cost of everything else in your life. And then yesterday I was re-listening to uh, the How to Start a Startup podcast that Y Combinator made available. And there's a lecture with Reid Hoffman on how to be a great founder. And one of the things he talks about is the myth of balance. And he said that is a big red flag for him because he said, basically, you're going to pour your life into this thing if you're building a company because there's so many ways to die. Um, so how do you balance that reality to becoming exceptional in what's required with the fact that everybody needs sleep, food, you know, the things that we need to survive, uh, without sort of killing yourself in the process? Yeah. So again, uh, I think you can become very good at something, um, you, you know, with that balance, but as, as you pointed out in all your examples, uh, uh, to become exceptional, to become, you know, uh, an Elon Musk or, the, or, or, or Reid Hoffman or a startup, successful startup founder, uh, you know, or a world-class uh, athlete or gymnast or whatever it is, uh, you just have to make that commitment. And that's, just the, and that's just how people have done it. It's not necessarily a healthy lifestyle. It's not necessarily something I'd advocate for everyone. But if you want to become the best tennis player, the best golfer, the best pianist, the best, uh, you know, electric car maker or whatever it is you want to do, uh, there is going to be that sacrifice. And, uh, and, and what I write about is an observation that everyone who's become exceptional uh, has had to go through that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you can't, you, this is the point I'm trying to make is that you can't say that I, you know, I want to win, you know, uh, 10 major uh, golf tournaments and you, you can't have that as a goal and yet say, well, yeah, but I'm just going to work from, you know, uh, 10 to 5 or something and, and then go home and forget about it. And uh, so th there is that mismatch and, and uh, the sad reality is that uh, that commitment is uh, an effort is absolutely necessary to achieve that level of success. Yeah. Now, one distinction you make is the difference between your possible and your personal best. What are, what, you know, for, for people who haven't read your book, uh, can you explain that? Yeah. So that's something uh, I think would help all of us, whether you become exceptional in something or not. I, so we're all wired to think of a personal best. You know, you, you do anything. You just, you run a race, you, you jump on your peloton, you do something, you you know, you play around a golf, you play with your friends, you do whatever you do. You, you know, you, you're a salesperson. You, you say, Hey, I did, I did X last month or last time. I want to do, you know, X plus one. I closed eight deals last month. I want to close nine deals. You know, I shot, you know, so, you know, this was my score. I want to do better. We're always looking at bettering our personal best. Now, the problem with that, there's nothing really wrong with that, but one, one problem is that it's a very backward looking metric. You're looking at bettering something you've done in the past. What I talk about is your possible best. And instead of your benchmark being what you did in the past and, and trying to do one better, what if your, your benchmark was your possible best, how far you can go, and start measuring yourself against, uh, against that journey? And I think that's how 
the most mm-hmm. exceptional people in the world have done it. And so that's the distinction I try to make between your personal best, which is backward looking, and your possible best, which is forward looking and, and, and something with, that you can strive towards. Uh, so one of the you know things that you talk about uh, is joining the exceptionals and you talk about the super elites and you say, unlike the elites, the super elites went through a significant negative life event, such as the loss of a parent or loved one, parental uh, divorce or an unsettled environment that resulted in substantial trauma in their minds. This gave them a chip on their shoulder or extra motivation to pursue excellence. Often, this negative shock was followed closely by a positive experience in their sport that compensated for the loss and served as a catalyst to becoming exceptional. Now, not that I consider myself super elite by any stretch of the imagination, but I can tell you being fired from every job basically was my motivation to, you know, make a career out of this hell or high water. Yes. uh, And uh, and the 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 sentence that you just uh, quoted was actually from a research study that was done with uh, with athletes. Uh, and it was a really interesting study where where they looked at the most elite athletes, you know, these Olymp- Olympians and people who represented the country in, 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 in the world championships. And they compared them with the super elite, not only people who had represented their country, but were gold medalists uh, and had won multiple medals in, in these events. So that was a comparison between elites and super elites. Uh, so we're, all, we're we're already talking in rarefied air. Even the lower group is in, in this rarefied air. And one of the differences that, that the researchers found was this uh, this ob- obsessive need to succeed. This uh, uh, people have been through a negative uh, uh, life event. But one big difference between the two groups, and something we can all uh, take to heart and learn from, is that the elites were focused on outcomes. They wanted to win their race or win their match. The super elites were also focused on outcomes because, of course, you know, they wanted to win whatever they were competing in, but they were also focused on mastery, that they were competing against themselves. They were trying to get to their possible best. And that was a big difference between the elites and super elites also. Yeah. So what if you didn't have one of these sort of negative life experiences uh, or, pivot, you know, what you call pivot points or, you know, what they basically call um, sort of the all is lost moment in the hero's journey? Is there something you can do to bring it about or can you bring that motivation yeah, about without like, you know, dismantling your life? Yeah, I think, well, I think pivot points are these, these events that happen there. They, they're basically these opportunities knocking on your door and you've got to, you've got to know that you want to answer them. And, and we all have pivot points. We all have this urge where we feel like we want to do something, but if you, you know, people make up negative, uh, life events, if, if uh, people just, uh, you know, uh, say that, you know, somebody wrote a negative article on me and I'm going to show them or, you know, people create these uh, motivational things that that drive them to to achieving what they want to do, because they really want to achieve their goals so bad that if there's no reason, I mean, th- there's always a reason which is internal, but they make up these uh, uh, these events that give them that extra push. Wow. Now, one thing you talk about is um, how people respond to these negative events, right? And how the people who make something out of this, uh, these negative events, respond to them positively, uh, whereas the people who don't react to them negatively. Uh, why is that? And, and, you know, how do you cultivate the capacity to react or, or respond positively to negative events? Well, I don't know if you cultivate that capacity, and, and, and this is this is not an area I've, I've researched deeply. Uh, so I really am a little bit out of my depth here. But I think that these events just give you that extra prompt or motivation. You are already on your path. You already know what you want to do. These things just these these negative events give you a little push each time. And and like I said, you know, if they aren't there, you kind of create them to give you that extra extra motivation. Well, let's finish up by talking about um, the three stages of skill development that you talk about, uh, which are the positive, the comparative, and the superlative. You, what are they, and you know how do they apply to our lives when we're trying to become exceptional? Yeah, and, and they apply to our lives in, in every way. Uh, so the first stage is that whatever you want to do, let's say you pick up you know, playing the guitar, you know, that initial experience has to be positive. You have to enjoy it. Otherwise, you're not going to do it for the second day. And and in that in that positive experience, uh, you know, you you enjoy something, you want to do better, you just do something for the pure joy and the and the satisfaction it gives you. 
Then you start getting a little bit better at it and you get to the second stage, which is the comparative stage. And again, in whatever your activity may be, then you say, oh, can I do this? Can I do that? You know, am I better than someone else? Can I win this race? You know, can I, you know, achieve certain milestones? And when you start thinking of all that, that's when you're thinking of your personal best. And that's when you're thinking of really, you know, you're really into it, into an activity. You're looking to get better at it. You have some benchmarks, some milestones, some targets, and, and you know, you're trying to achieve a new personal best each time and whatever it may be. It, it varies for activities. The final stage where you become exceptional at something uh, is the superlative stage. And now you've transcended that comparison uh, with other people or, or other benchmarks and metrics. You're trying to do something better for the sake of becoming better to see how far you can go. Uh, you're not doing it purely to, to do better than someone else. You're doing it because you know you can or you want to do it for yourself. And that's when you're striving for your possible best and that's when you're in the you know that's when you're in the rarefied air and and headed for something exceptional. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh I have two final questions for you. Uh you, as I mentioned, uh part of the reason that I wanted to interview you now in October was because I wanted to air your episode as the very first of the new year. And being a new year, a lot of people who are listening to this probably have goals that they want to accomplish in the next year. They have plans and so often what happens is we get to the end of the year, half the things we thought we were going to do, you know, goals we thought we were going to accomplish don't get realized. Um, what is your message to them for kicking off this year? That's a great question. So the first thing I would say is write down your goals. And research has shown that, that writing down goals is already a big step than just thinking about your goals. So you write them down. And then you, you develop a plan or a process, and it's not, an, not this uh, big, heavy process. Just write down how, you know, break it up. If you want to do something, if you want to lose, you know, 30 pounds by the end of the year, you know, work backwards. Start with your weight at, you know, whatever it is, minus 30 for the end of the year. But that means that you probably need to lose, you know, two pounds in, in this first month. How are you going to do that? And, and have this step-by-step plan that gets you there. Uh, the reason people don't accomplish goals is they try to bite everything off. They just try to do everything all at once. And that's just not the right way. You know, we've talked about micro-excellence or, or having a process. And that's what I would uh, advise people to do. Mm, amazing. Well, um, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think that's what being exceptional is. You know, you do something unmistakable, you maximize your potential. I, I think that it would be achieving your possible best, doing the best, making the most of your physical, mental, and social potential and, and achieving what you are built and made to achieve, not what someone else is. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us to share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? So the book is available everywhere. You can find it on Amazon or anywhere else. It's called The Exceptionals. Um, my website is my name. It's kumarmetha.com. Uh, that'll give you more information on, on my background and what I do and, and uh, both of my books and all the other articles I've written. So that's probably a good place to start. And I look forward to hearing from, from you or from other readers. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.